Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey guys, welcome to And The Writer Is. I'm your host, Ross Golan. I've written with hundreds of artists and writers over the years, and my favorite part of each session is the first hour when we catch up about life, the industry, politics, composition, whatever. So this is a journey of learning why people write songs, how people write songs, and most importantly, who the people are who write the songs. I'm producing this with The Great Joe London, Big Deal Music Publishing, and Mega House Music Management. If you want to listen to the songs we discuss in this podcast, follow us on our socials, find out about special live events, or buy that merch, aka that hat I always wear, go to our website, www.andthewriteris.com. For a little bit of context, we just wanted you to know that a lot of these were recorded before quarantine. And as we know, a lot has changed in 2020. So again, please stay safe out there. And enjoy the new episodes of And the Writer Is. Welcome to And the Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan. Today's country star isn't just influencing an entire genre's sound, but is evolving an entire genre's listening habits. He's continually setting and breaking his own sales and streaming records and has won enough awards in the past few years to fill the pews at the Ryman. But this multi-platinum ACM, CMA, CMT, and Billboard winning artist isn't making a name for himself in the pantheon of Nashville legends, uh, not just because he's selling a riverboat load of albums, but because he's sincere in his compositions and honest in his vocal delivery, which explains why this debut album reigned why his debut album reigned i screw that up which explains why his debut album reigned the billboard country charts for over 50 weeks this north carolinian is a rare international country star but more importantly a dedicated husband and dad and the writer is luke combs what up (laughs) i love the fanfare it feels good yeah, I, I spent all night writing that theme song at the end. <laughs> um, yo, first of all, congratulations. Your life is crazy. Thank you. Yes, it is. It is pretty wild. It is pretty wild. It is wild. All right, so uh, I guess I'm curious how you become uh, you. you. You know, you're you're 30 years old? Yeah. You are born in Charlotte, North Carolina? I was. Take it away. Who are your parents? Uh, my parents' names are Lee and Rhonda. Uh, my dad, uh, they're both retired now, uh, but dad was a maintenance man uh, his whole life. And mom worked in a bank and then worked in a prison. So that's uh, that's it. That's the fuck. Did, did they listen to music growing up? Oh, tons. Yeah, tons. We're both big, uh, big music fans. Man, uh, mom's deal was always kind of like 
petty John Mellencamp type, like Heartland rock type thing, as well as as well as country. She grew up listening to country, and Dad's from uh, Akron, Ohio, so his thing was kind of like Led Zeppelin, Who, Pink Floyd. That, those kind of folks were my dad's jam growing up. Um, my dad listens to everything, literally everything under the sun, from jazz to jam bands to you know i mean you name it he's probably he's probably listening to it so did they play music at all no like did they actually play instruments neither of them did uh, played instruments so how does a, a kid in north carolina end up playing an instrument um well my parents got me a guitar in seventh grade but i never i never really played it uh and then i learned to play guitar on that same guitar actually when i was 21 what kind of guitar was it man it was like straight up like i don't even remember like it was like 50 dollar type guitar you know you played football in high school right uh I imagine that, you know, I played hockey from where I grew up. And I just remember there wasn't like a lot of uh, talking about playing music in yeah. a uh, team sport like that in high school. Oh, definitely. Um, you, you said you were 21 when you started playing, but like you had a whole like life. Like you went all the way through high school and didn't play music. Was it ever something in your head where you were like, yeah, I think maybe I'll pick this up. I could do that someday or had it not even crossed your mind yet. I mean, I don't think that aspect of it had crossed my mind. I mean, I was in chorus class every day from sixth grade until I graduated high school. So I sang, yeah, it was like a known thing. Yeah. Like I was the singing dude that played football kind of thing, you know? Did you used to make up songs at all? No, at that I didn't. point, I didn't really know. I didn't write until I was like 22. Um, that wasn't something that I ever really thought about, and something that I didn't. I don't know. I guess it just seemed like such a far fetched idea. Maybe, like, you know, it wasn't like a realistic goal. I don't think, especially. So, how does that become a realistic goal? And it's so it's it's exciting that it's, you know, a lot of people think that they have to you know, they have to start at four years old to be a successful musician yeah. and, and not, you know, not someone who figures out on that guitar at 21. It's like, oh yeah, I actually kind of like this. Um, were you in college? Did you go to college? Yeah. Was it something where you, yeah, was, where'd you go? I was in college. I went to Appalachian State uh, in Boone, North Carolina. Uh, and yeah, that's where I started. You know, I started playing over the summer. I guess it was in the summer after my junior year of college i started playing and it just made sense to me after that like i had been singing for so long and then i was like well you know you can't really nobody wants to hear like somebody just sing you know what i mean like there needs to be instruments involved in that and so it was more like i played started learning to play guitar out of like so i was at home living at home that summer um, but all my my best friends from high school, they all stayed in their respective college towns that summer. And so I was living back in Nashville and like none of my friends were there. Uh, I had that guitar sitting in the closet. And I think my mom told me, excuse me, that 
Kenny Chesney and Tim McGraw didn't learn to play guitar until they were 21. I don't know actually if that's true or not. Uh, and, uh, but she did tell me that. And so then I was like, Oh, cool. Well then like I could learn to play cause I'm 21. So I went and got that old shitty guitar and taught myself how to play that summer. Uh, and then I was writing songs by, you know, the next, the next year. I mean, next year, school year. Why country music when your dad had his background and, you know, obviously that Americana country background that your mom had, you know, at least what they liked listening to, I'm sure that influenced you. But when you first started playing guitar, were you trying to learn country songs or were you just trying to learn songs? Like, what were you listening to? Well, at that time, so I grew up listening to, I mean, until I was like eight years old when I was living in Charlotte, um, my mom mainly listened to like mainstream country radio in the early nineties. So like Brooks and Dunn, Clint Black, Vince Gill, Garth, Randy Travis, like those were the people that I first listened. That was the first music that I listened to. And I remember listening to really. Um, and so that was the music that kind of stuck with me. And I felt like the genre in itself got away from that sound and that subject matter and that feel for me when I got, you know, around the time that we moved to Asheville uh, and my mom stopped listening to it. So when you're, you know, nine or 10 years old, you kind of listen to what your parents listen to. You don't really have your own taste in music, in my opinion, at that age. And so um, by the time I got to app, uh, there was a guy uh, by the name of Eric church that had also went to Appalachian state and his second album came out my freshman year of college there. And so someone turned me on to his music uh, and that kind of set off a chain of events that like helped me fall back in love with country music again, because I admired his approach to it and his songwriting. Um, and, and that's kind of like, I guess that's kind of the inception of like wanting to write on my own songs um, and kind of write stuff that reminded me of the stuff that I loved so much. Yeah. It's kind of like where, uh, where rock music should be right now. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I, I recognize that it's a, like if, if John Cougar Mellencamp is a rock star, he's really, it's like, it's, it's just like a version of country and, and where yeah. Eric Church is, you've seen that band, that band is dude, like, that's a rock that's band. A that's a band, dude. Yeah. I mean, that's, that band's rock, dude. And they're badass. <laughs> so you're, you're in Nashville, you know, you finish school, but some of the people who are in Nashville that are trying to make it have been there for 20 years. You know, where do you start? And, you know, at that point, well, I was lucky because I, so when I played guitar, I, I picked it up relatively quickly, like quickly enough to like be able to play some songs and write my own stuff, like nothing crazy, you know, like I wasn't playing lead licks or anything like that. Still not doing that. Were you writing your own songs alone or were you co-writing or at that point? I was writing a few alone at the beginning, but I was really just writing them with like buddies that I went to college with kind of thing. Like we would be like, you know, drunk or whatever and we'd be like, oh, let's write this song or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, and it was just what fun was to do that. What were those songs called? Like in that era, yeah. That era, dude, I wrote, one of my number ones is from that era. It's called She Got the Best of Me. Um, I wrote it with, I I did write it with two guys from Nashville, but I was still living in North Carolina uh, at that time. That is so legendary. (laughs) Um, You know, it's that thing, you start playing music for people, 
who in the industry starts listening to you and says, oh, no, this is more potential than just a guy who's in, you know, living in that, you know, in, in North Carolina, who's visiting Nashville. Yeah, it wasn't, like, who's, it wasn't uh, anybody like, really until I met my manager, Cappy. So I moved to Nashville in September of 2014. Um, I think I had written my first number one hurricane by November of that same year. Um, it didn't come out for a couple of years after that. Um, but I had written that song shortly after moving and I just, I had put a couple of EPs out in college of stuff that I had saved up some money for and gone to Nashville and recorded and, um, and put those out. And so I kind of got like a little bit of a fan base on Vine. Do you remember Vine that like social media yeah. app that was out? And so I used that and that like, so those people would buy my songs that I put out. And so that was kind of like my, my job other than playing shows. So I was playing a lot of shows in North Carolina, three, four, sometimes five shows a week. And that was my living. And then all over North Carolina. like Yeah. And then like right at the end there dabbled in like Northern South Carolina, Northeast Georgia, East Tennessee, Southern Virginia, uh, so like those kind of areas, but yeah, all over North Carolina and then just in that general kind of like a really small region um, of the South. Did you already have, when did you get a, you know, you had already written Hurricane and whatever, but when did you get a record deal? I got an independent deal. I got a deal with an independent label called Riverhouse, which I'm still under right now. River, it's Riverhouse in uh, Columbia, Nashville like together now there's a slash in there kind of thing um but i got that so in gosh i guess it would have been 2016 is when i got that when you when you would go and write on on you know music row and you're a you're a guy who is who's you know i hinted towards it in the intro but other people in country weren't really using vine Right. Other people in the country weren't using it. They still, they're just now, like fans are just now starting to stream. Sure. They're just now like getting, you know, right. picking it up. Did you find that people were not, you know, taking you seriously or not taking you seriously because of the path that you were taking technologically? Yeah, I don't, I don't know if it was as much that. I think it was just like I, one, like I didn't look the part, you know. Um, I wasn't a guy where it was like, oh man, this guy, you know, cause at that time, I mean, it was, it was really handsome dudes at that time. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> it was like fit dudes, good looking guys. I mean, you don't think they're handsome dude? No, I mean, I'm handsome as shit, dude. I mean, that's not what we're talking <laughs> about, but it's a handsome in a different way. It's a different side of the handsome coin. You know what I mean? Um, but it was kind of, you know, it was like when I moved there, you know, I didn't have a publishing deal. I didn't have anything going on. And you try to tell people stuff like, hey, you know, I'm doing this and doing that. And But I guess it was more like I thought what I was doing wasn't outside of the norm. You know what I mean? Like, I didn't know anything about the music business. I didn't know anything about, like, I just figured, oh, well, everybody's playing shows and selling a couple hundred tickets a night. Like, that's a normal that's not a big deal. And everybody's selling, you know, I would sell 15,000 copies of some songs I wrote in college. And I was like, Oh, well that's normal. How imagine how many 
major label guy is selling or whatever, you know? So I was kind of unaware. And so when I met my manager, Cappy, who had never managed anybody before, he was like, Hey man, like I know as little about it as you do, but like, I just know that these numbers are like not normal, you know, like this, I don't think this is normal for people. And so, I mean, it was just kind was of a weird. Or is he in Nashville? I don't know. What's what's Cappy's story? I don't know. I don't oh, know. His, so his story is he was working for a company called Sixth Man, uh, and they charter music cruises. Uh, I think he was actually the first employee of that company and worked, I think, almost every job that they have. Um, but he was doing that, making really great money doing that. But he had always wanted to um, be an artist manager. And he was, he was probably 42 at this time, 43. Um, and his best friend uh, is a guy named Bradley Jordan we grew up with. And he, uh, at the time, was a promoter in the Southeast. And he promoted like five to 1,500 seat rooms in the Southeast, like rock and roll clubs, but mostly did country stuff. He used to own a bar in Atlanta called Peachtree Tavern, um, which was a big draw in the, in the country scene. Uh, in like the early 2000s and, and like late 2010s kind of thing. Um, he sold that and then started essentially being just a promoter. So he booked me for a show. One of my first shows I got booked after I moved to Nashville, which took, I mean, I didn't play for probably eight or nine months. And then Bradley booked me a little show through a mutual friend. I played somewhere in kind of like middle Georgia in Rome, Georgia. And I'd never been there, never played there, hadn't played in nine months, hadn't put any music out in a year. And like 300 people showed up to this show. And Bradley called Cappy and was like, hey, I got this guy showed up out of nowhere. 300 people showed up for the show. He's awesome. This is your dude. Like you need to come here and like meet this guy or whatever. So Cappy came to the next show. Bradley booked for me. I think it was at Zydeco in Birmingham, which is like a 500-seat club in Birmingham. We put probably 250 people in that club first time in. Uh, I'd never played Alabama before. And, you know, me and Cappy developed a relationship from that point on. And he quit his job, moved to Nashville, lived off his life savings, and never took a commission until I could afford to pay my entire band uh, and not lose any money on the show. And so I think he was down to like less than a hundred dollars in his bank account when I cut him his first commission check, I think. Legendary. Yeah. Amazing. Pretty wild. Um, that That's super wild. What, what was it about your music at that time that people were, you know, without radio support, without <clears throat> no major label yet, none of that's happening. What is it they those 250 people in a town you've never been in before, what were they drawn to? What do you think it was in your writing that they, that made them want to actually go see this guy who hasn't been releasing music for eight months? I mean, I think it was probably just a little bit of like, I mean, I think the vocals are always the, like there for me. Like that's something I always strive for was having, you know, a, a good voice. That was something I always really, really tried to focus on was, was having good melodies and, and like strong, strong vocals that kind of stood out over anything else. 
Um, but you know, songwriting that I think went a little deeper than stuff maybe that was that was going on in the radio climate at that time. Um, but just writing stuff that I liked. That was what it was. It was like I just wanted to write stuff that I felt like I wanted to hear as a fan on the radio that I wasn't hearing on the radio. And so that's kind of how my sound, I guess, developed was like just filling a void as a fan a little bit for myself. And then that transitioned into, you know, what I'm doing now. It takes a really long time for songs to go number one. And people don't, not just talking about like when it's written to when it's released to then it's climb up to number one. But specifically for a new artist, usually it takes a really long time and usually it doesn't stay up, you know, for more than a week. Uh, the having that hurricane work, uh, tell me the process of mentally of what it's like to release a song that you believe in. And it's sort of the first like really big release, you know, with the intention of like, let's go, you know, some, somebody's funding going to radio. So, I mean, there's an intention of this to work, you know, again, people live in Nashville for 20 years. Right. Mm -hmm. And they still don't, you know, and then here's your first release at this level and it goes, what does it feel like in that process? Do you question yourself? Are you more confident? You know, what happens when you see a song actually work at that level? I think it was kind of a a mix of emotions a little bit. Like one, you're excited that you're getting a chance, you know, Um, and two, you're a little bit nervous maybe. Like you're like, man, like, because Nashville to me, feels kind of like a one-shot town you know like it's kind of like you come in you get a shot you know if you get dropped or if it doesn't work then like it ain't gonna happen again probably you know like i i don't know if that's i can't speak on la or new york but um it's so you're kind of like well, you know, you're worried about that. But at the same time, I was out. I mean, dude, I was out playing three nights a week. I mean, I've been doing that for a couple of years. And I knew that I could get on stage and hold a crowd. And I had been out. You know, I had put Hurricane out independently before, you know, I got my major label deal. And I watched it sell 15,000 copies in the first week. You know what I mean? Like, I, you know, I so I believed in that song. And I, you know, because I was watching the fans react to it every night at shows and singing it back to me and, and buying it. And, and it's like, I could feel the kind of the wave kind of coming before it was like, all right, well, we're going to send you on a radio tour and see what people think. Like I already had a feeling of what people thought. And I was lucky I mean, enough to have a bunch of songs in the can that I felt like were just as good, if not better than that one. So I was pretty confident at that time that, that it was going to be good. I, I had no idea that it would be this, but I, I had a feeling like, man, I'm, I'm going to get this shot and I'm going to, I'm going to make it. You know what I mean? Was there a moment where, you know, again, like you're saying, you, you sell 15,000 copies of a song on your own, massively successful, a song that's getting 8,000 spins a week on country radio nationwide is a different thing. Yes. Starts to get impressions to like tens of millions of people weekly. Right. Um, 
you can't tour fast enough to keep up with that. Sure. Was was there a moment when you notice, oh, this is there's sort of no turning back? I feel like that's a song yeah, title, by the way. I think it was like, you know, with your first one, you're like, Man, this is really great and this is big and and then you're kind of like, man, like, I don't want this to be, you know, you don't want to be a one hit wonder guy, you know, like you have that worry in your head where you're like, man, I hope they like the next one, you know? And so I think the moment I knew there was no turning back was when my second single came out. Like when, when it rains came out, it was so different than hurricane. And it was so like right up the alley of what I loved about the songs that I was writing and what I hoped people would would love about me and my sound once that happened i was like man if i can make that song work in a climate where the you know that kind of instrumentation is not the norm then i'm going to be fine because people were reacting to that one and it just went up from there it was like every song from there has gone even more up than that and it's like i just you know i still can't believe that all that stuff and and it's um do you have imposter syndrome? You know, do you look at yourself as like, this isn't really happening? Man, I think I went through that for a while, you know, where it was like, man, you know what? You feel this pressure of like, oh my God, all of a sudden you're this, you know, people are calling you like a country star, you know, kind of thing. And that can be like pretty intimidating thing. But then I was like, man, I'm just like myself, you know, and I always have been kind of like, I've never, like, I'm not any different of a guy than I was when I started doing this really, you know, um, I operate the same way. I write with the same guys, you know, I mean, I, I just, a lot more people recognize me in Walmart now than they used to. (laughs) That's kind of of the fundamental difference, you know? Do you still shop at Walmart? Uh, you know, when I can, you know, any chance I'm, any chance I'm going to the store. I mean, that we're out where I live. I mean, that's kind of the main, we have a little small grocery store up the street that's like a family owned deal. So I try to shop there um, as much as I can, but um, anything. You, you, were saying you, you make music a lot with the same people and, you know, Scott Moffat is the, is, is produced a bulk of your successful songs, sure. if not maybe all of them. Um you know the relationship between an artist and a producer in in the pop world is really fickle. You know, a lot of times it's like, well, whoever gives me the song, that's who produces it. You know, relationships aren't deep like that. Right. But there's clearly a loyalty in the relationship you guys have with each other. I don't yeah. know anything about like I don't know him personally, but how do you develop that kind of relationship? You know, what's that relationship like? Yeah, it started It started uh, through a guy that I co-write with named James McNair. He was like, so do you remember that band, The Moffats? The pop band? Oh, yeah. He was the lead singer of that band. And so, weird. And so, yeah, it was like a weird, like he was in Nashville, knew my buddy James. I was going in to do, you know, what would be my first EP since I'd lived in Nashville, which was like Hurricane and a couple like six of the songs that ended up being on my first album. Uh, and he was like, Hey, I had never worked with a producer before. Cause my first two, I was just kind of like, 
I just kind of produced those myself. You know, I went in with like musicians and just kind of told them like, Hey, do this or do that kind of deal <clears throat> from a sonic sonic standpoint. It wasn't like, I was like, play this riff, you know, like I wasn't that, I wasn't doing that. I was just like, Hey, I want this kind of sound and this kind of instrumentation. But went in with Scott. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. It was really great. Me, me and him couldn't, you know, have been or be more different of guys, you know, so I think that really worked out. I mean, he truly is a genius um, in there, man. And he's like a total perfectionist and kind of like has pushed me to the point of insanity at certain times um, with like, you know, his like perfectionism for what he wants it to be. And um, he recently like stepped away from, from working like at all. So like he didn't do the deluxe tracks that just came out. Um, that was me, a guy named Chip Matthews and a guy that I write with all the time named Jonathan Singleton. We, we co-produced the, the new tracks together. Um, that's why I love Scott. How did that, yeah. But, but, you know, how did it feel to produce your own stuff after having not, you know, been, been produced? Yeah, you know, it, it was, it, it was, hard? it was good, but I think, I think it is a lot different than LA, like as in the sense of like, I did, it didn't feel much different than the way that things worked with Scott. Like we would go, I was in the studio, you know, every day, track, we, you know, they're tracking stuff me and Scott are in there, you know, bouncing ideas off each other. And he was a little bit more in the driver's seat, um, you know, running the session um, than it was with me and Chip and Jonathan. It was more like we were bouncing stuff off of each other a lot more, but it was still like, it wasn't like Scott was ever like, well, this thing's going to sound like this. And that's the way it is. Like we fought over shit like that all the time Mm -hmm. because I would strongly believe like, Hey man, like, I know you're producing this, but like I'm the guy that has to go out and sing it every night and put it out on his record and stuff. So we, we did have, you know, I, I don't want to say contentious, but I want to say we both strived to fight for what we believed the song should sound like, you know, and that benefited, you know, that benefited me and it benefited him, you know, uh, a great deal. And so I'm thankful for that. Um, but the Chip and Jonathan thing was a lot more like collaborative a little bit as opposed to like, like we weren't button heads, you know, like we were, we were fighting the same fight kind of thing. We weren't like kind of battling with each other. Right. After uh, when it rains, it pours, you know, there's another hit you do 
one number away, another hit. And like you said, she's got the best of me, which was written way early on, right? That that ended up being the fourth single. Yeah. One is by the time you have your fourth single, like you were saying, the first one, you worry that this is my one shot. Do you start assuming when you release a song that it's going to, like, do do you have expectations that it's always going to be a hit now? You know, at this point, when you're releasing a song, number, you know, your fourth single, and it's an older song, are you just as confident at that point? Or do you ever start questioning, like, when does this end? I think I'm always a little nervous. You know, like, I'm always the guy that errs on the side of, like, realism as opposed to, like, sensationalism, you know? Like, especially, like, when we're going to book tour dates, I'm like, man, you sure we can sell this room out? Or you sure we can do this? Are you sure we're ready for this? You know, cause I, cause I always wanted everything that we do to be awesome and be great and, and feel like the right look for us at the right time. And so when we, when we decided as a team to do, she got the best of me, it was kind of like, it was the same philosophy as like hurricane as to like hurricane had been out for a year and a half by the time it went to radio. And so Lynn was the the woman who signed me to Riverhouse, and she was like, "Hey, you know, when I was working with Zach Brown, Chicken Fried had been out for three or four years, you know." And so I was in that mind of like, "Well, everyone's already heard it." That was my mindset. And she goes, "You don't understand. Like, all of your fans have heard it, but forty million people on the radio are going to hear it every week." And so I had to get out of that mindset. And so I think I had maybe a little bit of the same feelings with best of me was like, man, this song's like a little bit older, but I knew my fans loved it. And so then I had to go back and remind myself like, Oh, there's so many people who have never heard this because it wasn't on the album when it came out, you know, it wasn't ever at radio. And so it was, I mean, it was the right move, but it was also I air on the side of like, I make sure we're doing the right thing all the time. It's such a bridge between when you first start writing and then where you had come to since you said you wrote it before right. all this happened. Did your co-writers, I mean, those guys must have been like, just like, how shocked would you be if a song that's years old all of a sudden goes, is going to be the fourth single for somebody who's just had three number one songs? I imagine that there are a lot of people who are real surprised that that's going to be the next single, especially not having been on the album and everything. Yeah. And they were like, they were super stoked. And like two of my favorite guys that I write with and the way I got that right was even more interesting. So at the time when I wrote that, they were hosting a writer's night called um, Tinder Revival. I think now it's just called Revival. But it, uh, it is every week at the Tin Roof there on, on DeMundrian in Nashville. And so it, it was just kind of a new hot writer's night that I was seeing. So I followed go to. And so when I came to Nashville, I made an, an, an effort to just go and, and be there and check it out and stuff. So the two guys that ran it were there. I was in town with another guy I played music with in North Carolina. And he booked a, he like talked his way into a co-write with Rob Snyder, who was the guy that, that ran it, one of the guys that ran it. Um, and so I think we ended up, he was like, yeah, well, let's just write tomorrow or whatever. And Tally in town for a couple of days. And so we ended up getting like, you know, super drunk or whatever that night out. And, uh, the next morning, Adam was like, hey, dude, I'm like way too hungover to go to this right. 
like, will you go to this right instead so that this guy doesn't like hate me forever? And I was like, oh, dude, for sure. So I go to this right in like Rob's apartment. Um, I remember like, this is like the level of struggle we were at is like, I was driving my first car from high school, which was like a 2000 Dodge Neon with like 250,000 miles on it. Drove it over to Rob's apartment, got in. He was like trying to hide his van from like the fucking quick cash people. Cause like he owed money on his van or something and they were going to try to come get it and stuff. Sat down, played like, he was like, Oh man, you're not the guy I booked it right with kind of thing, you know? And I was like, yeah, dude, my buddy got drunk or whatever. And he couldn't make it. And she's like sick or whatever. And so we, we, I played him some stuff in his living room and then Channing Wilson was staying with him at the time comes out of his room in like a robe or something. And Rob was like, Hey, you trying to write with this guy? And Channing was like, no, I'm not trying to write with this guy kind of thing. (laughs) Kind of deal. And he said, no, dude, hear this, hear this dude sing. So I played, I played night moves by Bob Seger. And he was like, yeah, I'm trying to write with that dude. And so we wrote, I had an idea in my phone called it got the best of me. And so, and Channing kind of morphed that to, she got the best of me. And I remember we were joking about it and, and Snyder was like, what if it was like this big power ballad thing where it was like, she got the best of me. She broke my heart. And <laughs> we were just kind of like, man, that might be it, you know? And we wrote it that day. I put it out a few months after that. And then, yeah, man, I mean, I guess it would be probably three years later we were like, hey, we're going to do a deluxe. Let's go re-record this song. And they were like, oh, that's super cool. And then it was like, man, we're going to put it out as a single. And that was both of their first number ones. I hope Channing showed up to the recording session still wearing a robe. <laughs> like that's, that's, yeah. Yeah, It's like every time you guys hang out. It's like, it turns out that it wasn't that he was home. It's just yeah. that he just comes out in the robe. He just comes out <laughs> in the robe all the time. Yeah. Uh, that, um, there's a... A fun anecdote about that song, just that uh, only Brooks and Dunn and Florida Georgia Line had their um, their first four songs go number one or something like that. Some yeah. Something crazy like that, which is kind of crazy because those all took a group of people to do it. And then here's just, you know, this one handsome fellow from North Carolina. Yeah. Pretty, pretty nuts. Um, do... When you become a new, you know, name in the industry and you do radio shows and you do a show with, you know, some of those perennial guys, like those, the classic guys, the ones that have been around forever. Sure. Is there, is there, uh, what's the exchange? I'm sure it's different per guy or whoever it is, but I've been backstage to some of these tours and I don't know how much. It was always, you know, you're on a bus with these, with whatever artists you're with, and then they go on stage, they play the show, then they come back to the bus, and there wasn't, you know, a ton of interacting. But what's, you know, it's one thing when you're playing the 250 room, you know, seat rooms, and then it's another when you're playing these stadiums for radio shows. You know, what's the relationship between you and the guys who've been there for 20 years? And here you are breaking their records and doing things like that. I mean, I think now it's now it's awesome. You know, like now it's just like, 
oh man, like I have a direct line to kind of like whoever, you know, like guys that I would can kind of consider my heroes, you know, like I can text them and like go fishing with them or whatever, you know, which were badass and cool and like doesn't ever get like uncool to me. Um, but I mean, it's really intimidating, I think, for, for like a guy like myself, you know, is because you want those dudes to like you. You know what I mean? Like, because you're like, and I think for me, it wasn't like, it was never, I think sometimes in the music business, people get so caught up on like, they want other artists or whatever to think they're cool or like, you know, feel like they're really famous or important or whatever the hell that is. And to me, it was never that. Like, I wanted respect. I wanted those guys to be like, this guy is a country singer. This guy writes kick-ass songs. This guy cares about what he does. This guy puts on a good show. That that was it for me. Like that, it wasn't like, man, that guy's got a cool car or that guy's got a really expensive watch or what. Like it wasn't that for me, you know. Like, and all those things come by proxy, in my opinion. You know, like if you're putting out really great music, you know, you, you can you can earn the respect of of some of those guys, and it, it's. In- those events man because you go in especially when you're the new guy and you go in you might have one or two number ones and you know you play one or two and then but you realize you know you got to play five or six songs you know and that guy's playing you know he's playing you know he's rocking the greatest hits album dude and you're up there like playing your new single that's like you know in the top 50 or whatever you know like it's tough to compete with that and it takes it takes a lot of confidence to go in and go you know what man like i got this but i i always approached it like to me a little bit like especially in those environments i get kind of in this i call it like a michael jordan mindset where it's like i'll play after anybody and like it may not be true but i'll tell you like i'll go up and play after adele and be like i'm a better singer than her and I don't think that I am, but like it, the mindset is like, I can't you put in that, effort sure. you put in, yeah. you put yourself in that headspace to go out there and perform at your best, you know? And I, I don't think that I'm any better than any of those guys, but like, I have to believe that when I go on stage to, to do the best that I think that I can do, you know? Yeah. It's interesting when you said, when we, you know, that, that as you, you still look at, your agents who are probably telling you that you can play this size room or that size room. And now when you think of size rooms, if you toured at all, you know, anybody's listening to this toured a little bit, at least not anybody, but a lot of people have. And when you've toured some of these rooms that are a hundred and you graduate to the 500 seat rooms, and then you end up to the thousand seats or 1500 or whatever, uh, the rooms you're talking about now are arenas and it's probably how many nights you can fill an arena. Right. But it's still called, you know, you still call it, you know, filling up that room. <laughs> it's right. a really right. big room. It's a big, it's a bigger room. Yeah. It's a big room. Um, is that because you still in your head, are you still playing even when it's for 20,000 people? Are you still thinking in your head that you're playing it for 250 people or do you change the way you perform depending on how many people are in the room? I think, I think it was probably good practice to change how you perform for that, but I don't Um, like, I'm not 
like a big, I'm not a big, I'm not a believer in big production, you know? Um, and I think a lot of people are, and I think that that's okay. It's just not my style. I'm a believer in songs. I'm a believer in real instruments. I'm a believer in real vocals. Um, I don't put anything on the record that I can't emulate with my band on a live show. I don't run any tracks in my show at all. Um, never have, not saying that I never will, but I don't want to. Um, and that's just my style, man. Like I want it to be, when you come there and you hear it, one, it's going to sound like the record, if not better than the record. And, and two, what you see is really what you get, you know, like you come and it's like, it's me and the band playing and singing. There's not fireworks going off. There's not a laser light show. Like you're coming to hear your favorite song and sing along to it. And the focus is going to be the music. I think that's my approach. Sure. Sure. When in 2019 you release, you know, um, what you see is what you get, and it's a number one album across all genres. It sort of shows, you know, it's one thing when you have songs because I think a lot of times people don't know who the singer is of that song they like, but it's impossible for an album to sell if you don't know who the artist is. Nobody's by accident buying the album. Mm-hmm. They might by accident listen to the song because it could be on a playlist or it could be, you know, on the radio. But no one's purposely listening to ten songs by by accident by right. somebody. Yeah. Um, does that change the dynamic in how you write, knowing that your audience is no longer, you know, it's not just. Uh, it's not just in the U.S. Yeah, and it's not just country. Does it change? Do you start writing songs at all that are built for, you know, a different kind of audience? I don't think so, because to me, it's like th- those are the things that got me here. You know, I think of a little bit. You know, I, d- I definitely don't want to be a dude that people go, "Oh, that guy just puts out the same song every year." You know, so right. I think there is. I think you have to evolve a little bit to stay relevant, you know, uh, but it's, it would never be in an attempt to satiate, you know, a, a certain fan base or a certain new crowd of folks, because I think, you know, everyone that's listening is, is here for the same reason, you know, and it's the songs that I've already written that they, that they really like. So I don't really see a point in gearing anything to any certain any certain group because I mean, there's uh, enough people that are digging it right now and um, that's good enough for me, man. Yeah. How do you have a social life during any of this? Like how do you have a personal life in any of this? Like the amount of music you're writing and then releasing and I know how much you tour. Yeah. I mean, how are you during any of it? I mean, global pandemic has helped a lot. Um, You know, uh, it's been, you know, really kind of tragic and beautiful, like double-edged sword a little bit for me, you know, um, it's kind of forced me to pull the e-brake on, on the touring. Um, and, and, 
you know, I just got married in August, um, which I'm so stoked about. And I've gotten to spend an amazing amount of time with my wife and, and we've really been enjoying each other's company, which has been exciting and fun and something that I'm very appreciative of. But I hang out with like my, you know, my best friends other than, you know, the guys that I went to high school with, um, you know, who, that you know, they live all around, you know, the Southeast work in various jobs and, um, other than them, it's the guys that I write with because they were the guys that I was friends with when I first moved to Nashville. And the, you know, and everybody on my team is uh, all the way down to my crew um, is a very family atmosphere. You know, um, I've been able to keep my entire band and crew on salary throughout the pandemic, which I'm very thankful for. Uh, and, I, and I know those guys appreciate a lot. And, and we have we have a lot of um, a lot of loyalty to each other, you know, and we, we all get along there. There's not any tension in our camp amongst, well, I don't like this guy and that guy doesn't like that girl or whoever it is. It's, we all get along. We all genuinely enjoy being around each other. And I think it's just as easy for me to have two guys over to write a song. And I'm just as happy if we don't write at all. And we just, you know, ride the Polaris around or play video games. Like to me, that's just as great as, as writing a, a great song, you know, and, and everybody knows like nobody's fighting for time in my camp either. It's not like anyone's going, well, I got to get more rights with Luke or like, they all know that like, we're going to get rights together because we've all been writing together for a long time. And so that kind of eases that pressure of like, man, when I go out to Luke's, we got to write three songs, you know, it doesn't have to be that thing. Um, are you writing over Zoom? You been doing any of that? Did it at the very beginning, um, but you know I've got this big space here. I, I usually write in in this room, and it's it's not a room. It's kind of like a it's like a twenty two hundred square foot building. Um, it's got couches in it and TVs and recliners. So we just people just come over here. I live just a, a short distance outside of Nashville, and so. I think everybody's been so cooped up. They really enjoy coming out here. I'm, you know, I'm on 140 acres. So we got a lot of room to like roam and be outside and, and, you know, we're, 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 we're <laughs> naturally socially distanced out here. So um, yeah. everybody's kind of comfortable coming over and, and relaxing. And, but I've also written with some guys who, who, you know, aren't comfortable coming out. So, and we did the zoom thing and that's just as good for me too. The uh, a lot of people won't be watching this; they'll be listening to this. But you have jerseys all over your walls behind you. Mm -hmm. What are those jerseys? So I've got. Let's see. Top left is when I played. Uh, that's when I played the new Braves Stadium with Jason Aldean. Um, that's my high school football jersey. I got a Tennessee Titans jersey they gave me with my name on it. Uh, Bridgestone Arena, Jersey back there, Nashville Predators. Those are my college rugby jerseys right there. Uh, played rugby in college. And then that is uh, – uh, those are two Appalachian State football jerseys that they gave me as well. I've probably got about 20 more over here out of frame that you can't see. But uh, Are you um, – is it – you were an offensive lineman then? Defensive lineman. With that? Defensive lineman. Defensive lineman? Yeah. I imagine that, you know, I don't know how much um, 
I feel like the teamwork you learn when you're working probably on a defensive line is pretty good when you're talking about it's not that dissimilar from a band. It's like everybody needs to have their own space, but you have to like you have to work together constantly. I imagine there's some teamwork that you got out of that experience. Oh, definitely, man. You know, and I think I think that's also kind of where the family aspect a little bit came in. It was like, you know, when we played, when I played rugby in college, we actually didn't have a coach. And so we were student coached, um, which was interesting. Uh, and um, and so we we learned how to, you know, do things on our own and have that independence, but also, you know, everybody pull their own weight and contribute um, and and be successful as well. We were, we were a really great team. And so um, I learned a lot from that, you know, and I think I brought some of that into the way it, that we run things now, which is everybody do their job. You know, nobody's, nobody's micromanaging anybody and, and everybody, we trust everybody with what they do and we care about everybody that works for us. And, I, and that has paid dividends for us over the last couple of years. You have, um, you have some cool moments in your career in this last year. Um, when you talk about Eric church being an idol and then to have him featured on your record. Yeah. Did you text him and just say, "Hey, idol of mine, <laughs> like, yeah, yo, you want to be on this record? Like, how do you get, how do you get your idol to be featured on a record?" Yeah, I mean, I, I, I didn't really have a close personal relationship with him at that time, um, and so I actually went through like the proper channels of like manager to manager reaching out thing, and and I said, "Hey, here's the deal." I said, you know, I'm a huge fan kind of of yours. I mean, you've probably known that for a while now. And um, I had had, gosh, I mean, the time I recorded that, probably four or five number ones at that time. And so um, I said, hey, I want you to be on this thing. And I only want you to do it if you really like the song and, and if you really want to do it. Um, I don't want right. you to feel like you have to say yes to this because I will totally, my feelings will not be hurt if you say no to it. Um, because I also get how busy people are and how crazy of a, of a business this is. So, um, yeah, man, I was, it was awesome. You know, I'm, I'm really stoked and, and, you know, we've since, you know, uh, become buddies and stuff. So that's been, that's been really great. Um, but it was really cool, man. It's definitely definite dream come true. And not to cut it in, but we do have another interview in two minutes. So if you could. All right, cool. So we'll, we'll wrap up. Um, in our last segment, we'll do a five, for five i'll just list five things and you just tell me like something that comes off the top of your head so we'll start with cappy oh man passionate scott moffett uh kooky and super talented your band hilarious your dad badass your mom sweet you know what? And let's say your wife. This is number six, but let's just go for yeah. it. I love it. Well, thank you for doing this, man. I know you're a busy guy, but uh, you know, uh, one of the cool things is that the reason why I think you're really successful is because everyone talks about how nice you are behind your back. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's good. I'm sure. You know, you're obviously very talented. But there are a lot of talented people on this planet. There aren't necessarily people that everyone's rooting for. 
Uh, I think people are rooting for you because you're nice to the people that you work with. And, you know, when you talk about taking care of your band and stuff, that's just a good example of a long career of having taken care of people around you. So, um, you know, it's good to know you and uh, um, I'm proud to have you on our podcast. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. All right, bud. Take it easy, okay? There you go. Thanks, guys, so much. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of And The Writer Is. If you want to hear music from this songwriter I just interviewed, be sure to check out our Spotify playlist or visit our website at andthewriteris.com. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to us. You can also like us on Facebook and Twitter. And The Writer Is is produced by Joe London, edited by Miles Bergsma, and published by Big Deal Music. A special thanks to David Silberstein from Mega House Music and Michael White. Until next time, this is Ross Golan. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.